a series on the backslider, Pilgrim's Regress, and we're sort of nearing the end of the uh, signs of backsliding or the ways people backslide, and then there'll be maybe one or two sermons on the returning backslider, how to win backsliders back, so there's a sort of trajectory where you see people leaving the church, giving up their love, things like that, but then how do we win them back? So there is a ending goal here uh, and an end in sight. There's a goal of these sermons, but today we are in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, and we're looking at a, a major cause of backsliding in the Christian faith in terms of mortification of sin. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, let us pray. Father, please help us now to know what your word says, but the interpretation is certainly not as difficult as the application. So please grant us special grace to apply these words with success in our lives and not merely to know what they mean. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Many of you are maybe, being in a Reformed Presbyterian church, aware of uh, John Owen's uh, somewhat famous book, the mortification of sin. Uh, 83 pages, I believe, in the Banner of Truth edition of small print, so like a 5,000-word novel, uh, 5,000-page novel. Uh, I've seen what my wife reads, and they blow up the, the font. You know, She's always, when I'm lying in bed trying to have a bit of peace and quiet, I hear the pages turning so quickly, and I realize... It's because the font is so big. And so she's going through the book so quickly. She needs a bit of John Owen in her life. And I won't have to listen to the pages turn when I'm trying to get some beauty sleep. Uh, And I promise not to keep complaining about sleep issues to you uh, from the pulpit. But uh, John Owen spent 83 pages of small font. Let me re-emphasize that point. Uh, dissecting the soul in terms of this one verse, and it is quite a masterful piece of uh, pastoral theology. Uh, It has got scholastic uh, distinctions in it. It's got doxology, prayer. It's got application. It's really uh, quite a work. And if you've read it, you can um, say quietly your amen. We are Presbyterians. Um, but you can also talk about it with your friends after and say, yes, I, I have read that book. Uh, and it's sort of a reform credential that you should try to get if you wish to be a, a sort of theologian of the church. John Owen, volume 6, pages 1 to 83. Uh, now, what I hope to do tonight is, is take some of the insights of Owen, some of the insights of Stephen Charnock, some of the insights of many theologians over the ages and kind of give you a, a taste of what Uh, Paul is trying to get at in this one verse, which contains a sort of body of divinity in this one verse. Uh, 
Matthew Henry actually makes an important point as we set ourselves up for this. He said, God's promises to us are more powerful and effectual for the mortifying of sin than our promises to God. He begins off noting that if you're going to have any success in this endeavor to put to death sin, it has to be based upon what God has promised to do more than what you have promised to do. And you only have to look at your New Year's resolutions over the years to see what a complete failure you are as a human being in many respects. I hope that I'm not imputing my own experience to you all unwarranted, but I think we can all understand something of what uh, self-effort and self-strength and self-invention can do uh, very little. Now, the difference between a healthy Christian and a Christian who is backsliding is fundamentally the difference between a Christian who is killing sin and a Christian who has stopped killing sin. And the text divides itself up with Some very obvious points. Notice there is a threat based upon a condition. For if you live according to the flesh, this is if you live according to the flesh, there's the condition, there's a threat, you will die. And this is not uh, a sort of, oh, well, you're going to expire like every other human being. There are eternal realities being spoken of here because the dying is juxtaposed with the living. And the living is not obviously biological because even Christians die. So we're talking about eternal realities. If you live in a certain way, according to the flesh, you will die. You will be judged. God will come to reckon with you. But there's also a promise. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, that is not to say that you will live because your heart will beat, because there are people who clearly are not Christians whose heart beats and they live. This is a speaking of, uh, to use a, a word that ordinarily should not be used in the pulpit, this is speaking of eschatological life. It's talking about the big picture, the life that is eternal. But then notice there's a threat, there's a promise, but there's a promise based upon the successful performance of a duty. So if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So who are those who are going to live? They are people who put to death the deeds of the body. The NIV, I believe, and I don't have an NIV before me, the NIV tries to do an interpretive issue here. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, trying to speak of the sinful actions. Now that is, I think, assumed here. Uh, in the ESV, but it just speaks about the deeds of the body. And I think one of the reasons the NIV wanted to say misdeeds is that not all deeds need to be put to death. But in context, it's clearly sinful deeds. Now, who are the agents in this endeavor? Well, there's two. Notice, the Christian, if by the Spirit, you, you put to death. So, we will get to this a little bit later. You are the actor You are involved. You are not an innocent bystander just waiting for God to do His work. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body or the deeds of the body, you will live. But there's also another agent, and that agent is the Holy Spirit. If by the Spirit. 
Now, who are the yous that he's speaking to? If the person involved is truly involved, and if the person involved is living in the Spirit, who is that person? Well, it's the person in verse 1 who is no longer under any condemnation. It is the person who possesses the Spirit of Christ in verse 9. It is a Christian, and only a Christian can put to death, can mortify the sinful nature. Somebody who is not a Christian asking them to put to death the misdeeds of the body is like somebody whose house is on fire, but uh, they call in somebody to kill a rat that is running around in the attic. And the rat is running around in the attic, and they're very concerned about this rat. The house is on fire, and the person comes over and says, oh, I didn't think I was coming to put out a fire. And they say, oh, no, don't worry about that. That's fine. We'll let that one go. But there's a rat in my attic. Could you please deal with it? Someone trying to put to death sin who is not a Christian is like someone who is trying to deal with a rat when the house is on fire. You need to be justified. You need to be cleansed, washed. You need to be accepted by God. The fire needs to be out before you worry about the rats in the attic or whatever these sins may be. So this is something that has a condition. It has a promise. It has a threat. It has agents. But those agents are Christians. Now it's also a daily duty. Now we are lovers of pleasure by nature and not lovers of pain. And this doesn't necessarily mean that is sinful. God constituted us in such a way that pain is not a good thing. If Adam was to uh, hurt his hand in the garden as he worked the garden and felt pain, that would not be something that would be considered necessarily a good thing, but it's also not something that's necessarily sinful. So we are averse to pain and we love pleasure, and pleasure is also not necessarily sinful. Let me say that again. Pleasure is not sinful. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So pleasures are not sinful, but we are also averse to pain. The problem is, in the spiritual realm, we don't like the difficulty of the Christian life. And there are difficulties. We don't like dealing with indwelling sin. It is painful. It is not always pleasurable. And that is why some people do so poorly when it comes to the mortification of their sin. They like what sin offers. And your indwelling sin loves certain aspects that manifest themselves in pleasures. So there is the pleasure of sex that God gives to married couples, but people pervert that for pleasures outside of that realm. Food is a gift from God, but people can pervert the pleasure of food for gluttony. And you can take any good thing that God has given And those pleasures, good gifts from God, can be perverted because of our sin nature. And so we have to deal with that. Now, this killing of sin must be on God's terms. This is the most important point, because if you miss this, then you will miss the entire point of what Paul is saying. Now, John Owen, he has a thousand quotes that are worth offering. I've only chosen a few. But he says, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness 
is the soul and substance of all false religions in the world. I'm going to say that again because it's, it's gold. Mortification from a self-strength. I can do it. Carried on by ways of self-invention. I know how to do it. Unto the end of self-righteousness, I have done it, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Whatever religion is out there, it amounts to this, because it is not a religion whereby the Holy Spirit is enabling you to do things on God's terms. Now this is very important to understand, because as we mortify, what are we doing? We are killing sin. And as Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the battle we are engaged in. And so we are to take away the strength, the vigor, the power of indwelling sin. And the promise that God offers is that this is actually possible. We are not defeatists. We know that based on God's promise, we can actually deal with our sin. And the more we deal with sin, the happier we will be. But it isn't easy. Now, what means does the Spirit make use of? Well, firstly, you have to understand that when the Holy Spirit is given to us graciously, He does a number of things. He fills our hearts with grace and those things contrary to the flesh. So, when you receive the Spirit, you receive the fruit of the Spirit. You receive the gifts that are associated with the fruit of the Spirit. You receive love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and faithfulness and kindness, self-control. You receive that. And those graces are contrary to their opposite, which are listed a few verses earlier in Galatians 5. Wrath, envy, falsehood, all of those things. So when you receive the Spirit, you are already receiving graces contrary to what the sinful nature feeds off of. And that gives you a massive advantage in the Christian life. But when you receive the Spirit, you also receive a Spirit that burns up the root of sin. And so Paul can say that because you are Christians, sin no longer has any dominion over you. It's still present in you in chapter 7, but in chapter 6, it's not your master anymore. You've died to sin. And sin has lost its controlling power and strength. It's not lost its presence, but it's lost its dominion, its victory over you. And so, the Spirit is given to you, but also not just to burn up the root of sin so that its dominion is taken away, not just to fill your heart with grace, but also to do this. The gift of the Spirit places the cross of Christ foremost in your life so that your whole life now is dictated by constant looks to Christ crucified. Take away the Holy Spirit in your life, you will not look to the cross as you ought, and the cross will do no good to you as it is meant to. So the Spirit comes in the name of Christ Coming in the name of Christ, the Spirit actually causes you to have looks to Christ. You know when we say you must look to Christ? You will only ever look to Christ to have any benefit because the Spirit is enabling you to look to Christ to benefit. And that is the role of the Spirit. How do you know the Spirit is at work in the life of a congregation, in a sermon, in a book, in whatever it may be? You will 
focus on Christ crucified and resurrected. Now, having said that, the Spirit also makes use of means. So the Spirit comes into your life, but it isn't necessarily automatic. You don't say, oh, I'm converted, and I get to take my foot off the gas, I don't need to do anything, the Spirit will accomplish all. No, if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So how do you actually put to death your sinful nature by the Spirit? And it seems to me that the three principal means that God makes use of are the following. Word, sacrament, and prayer. Those three. Not exclusively, I believe that fellowship with God's people can be a means by where we deal with sin. I believe that there could be a number of other things that can be used. But principally, it is God's Word that the Spirit uses, whether in preaching, whether in reading, whether applying it in your meditation, or whatever it may be, whereby when you look to Christ, what are you looking to? You're looking to the glories of Christ as revealed in His Word. So if you're going to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the Spirit, the Spirit has to illuminate the truth of God to your soul. The Spirit doesn't work apart from the Word. The Spirit takes the Word and applies it to your life. So it is the Word that the Spirit uses to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It's also the sacraments. How does baptism help you? Well, your identity has changed. So when you're considering whether you should do something or not do something, does your identity as a Christian whose name has been changed because God's name is now upon you and you are identified by the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you are identified by having been baptized into Christ, that you say, my identity has shifted now from one of godlessness to godliness, from one of being unholy to being holy, from one of being a child of the devil to now a child of God. And so my identity as a baptized Christian is one whereby I cannot do this awful act. You are making use of your baptism. It is a living thing, baptism. It is not a past experience. The only baptism that ultimately matters is the baptism that you make use of each day in your Christian life. Otherwise, you may as well join with the Baptists and say, what's the point? That baby doesn't remember what happened. No. But what about the person who has made use of that baptism every single day and what it promises and what it conveys and the power of the reality in their life when they're 10, when they're 15, when they're 95. Word, sacrament, and prayer. So why do we pray? Because the Holy Spirit in our prayers in chapter 8 testifies that we are children of God, causes us to cry out with groans that words cannot express, helps us to understand that we are children of God. And so through prayer, we can put to death the misdeeds of the flesh because we are calling upon God to do what we cannot do. We are showing that we are dependent upon God to do the things we cannot of ourselves do. The Word of God in the Word, the Word of God in the sacraments, the Word of God in prayer, and connected with the sacraments, of course, is the fact that the Lord's Supper is to be received. Because when you take 
and eat. When you take and drink, you are applying the gospel to your soul in a visible way. You are eating the body of Christ which was given for you. You are drinking the blood of Christ which is poured out for you. You are taking the gospel and applying it to your soul because you know that your soul cannot survive apart from the truth of God, the gospel of God, the promises of God. And so to the degree that you sit under the Word, to the degree that you make use of the sacraments, to the degree that you make use of prayer, you will put to death your sinful nature. Now, what does mortification then do for us when we do that? It actually then makes room in your heart for more grace. So the more you land blows against sin, the more the contrary will flower. I see some nice gardening took place outside. Did you notice that? I said to Bart, uh, moved any uh, stones from wells lately? Uh, And he said, yes. Uh, Look outside. Beautiful dirt. You know that nice dark fresh color? And after a while it goes back to what? But I love that new fresh dirt look. I'm not one myself to do a lot of that. uh, But... Um, the point is, uh, when you get rid of, uh, I'm led to believe, the weeds, uh, it does allow other good things to take place in the garden. But you know, the weeds, and uh, I still have a lot of post-traumatic stress from growing up as a boy, and my mom would say, okay, time to get out and do some weeding, Mark. And I would say, okay, I'll go do the weeding. But uh, it was never enough for my mom to send me out to do the weeding. She would start to get excited herself and come out and join me. And that's where the trouble started. Because I was fine on my own doing the weeding. But once she started, then I knew it was not half an hour, but it was going to be a torturous several hour experience if she had her way. But I saw that once you got rid of all of those weeds, and sometimes I just chucked things out and didn't know if it was a weed or not, because, you know, that's what young boys do. Uh, you get rid of the weeds in order to allow the good stuff to grow. And your life is very much like that. To the degree that you put to death your sinful nature, the contrary grace will have room to express itself. If you're a selfish person, if you're an angry person, if you're a person who is allowing the flesh to take root in your life, it's going to crowd out the graces of the Spirit. But if you put to death the sinful nature, the graces of the Spirit will flower and you will ultimately have even more success. To whom some is given, more will be given. To whatever little you have will be taken away. There's a parable that illustrates that point and that is how sanctification will act. Now, I want you to consider by way of application a few things. The first is these things to consider when killing sin. Consider if you are about to sin, the guilt that you should have in your sin. What happens to people who backslide is typically they start to lose their guilty conscience about what they've done. And at first they are sensitive to guilt, but then the more they practice sin, the less guilty they become over time. And they start to end up justifying their sin to the point that they've so justified their sin, they no longer have guilt for that sin, and so they've become less and less sensitive to the guilt of sin. 
Keep your conscience sensitive to the guilt of sin. And mortification will take place. Once you lose that sensitivity to guilt, who knows what will happen. There are things, right? I remember first becoming a Christian. And I think one of the most beautiful things about a new Christian is how highly sensitive they are to the guilt of sin. It's one of those graces where you don't have a lot of knowledge when you first become a Christian, but I think God gives you a special endowment of guilt over sin at first because you don't have a lot of knowledge. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, we should still keep that sensitivity to the guilt of our sin. But one thing I've noticed in my life and in the lives of many Christians is we can very easily lose that sensitivity to guilt over our sin and sometimes wrap it up as Christian liberty. Be very careful about losing that sensitivity. It may manifest itself in things that you start to watch that you would never have laughed at, never enjoyed at one point in your life, and now you sort of say, well, I'm a mature Christian. We mustn't become legalists. We mustn't, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. And you allow yourself to indulge in things you never would have when the Spirit so powerfully entered your life. Now, is it true new Christians can be a little bit legalistic? Yes, and that requires a lot of patience and instruction. But it's also true that new Christians can have a very beautiful sensitivity to guilt. But also be sensitive to the danger of sin. So not only the guilt, but your sins can be very dangerous. They can get you in a lot of trouble. There are Christian people who have sinned willfully in certain ways and they have found that they have got themselves into a lot of trouble. It could be financial trouble. It could be medical trouble. It could be family trouble. It could be trouble of all sorts. There are real costs to sin in terms of consequences. Jesus can forgive all of your sins and His blood can cover all of your sins. But if you look at the life of David, what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah He had to deal with the consequences of those sins for the rest of his life. His family was never the same. Read 2 Samuel. His own son tries to kill him. He has dysfunction everywhere. So be sensitive to the danger of what your sins will leash upon you if you willfully and stubbornly continue in that pattern. But then also consider the evils of it. Because unmortified lusts grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is meant to make you a Spirit-filled Christian. The Holy Spirit is meant to make you a Spirit-dependent Christian. But very often we are Spirit-grieved Christians by our refusal to consider the evil of sin. It is the evil of evils. And there is nothing evil in this world except sin. So be sensitive to the guilt of sin and what it does to your conscience. Be sensitive to the danger of sin and the consequences of what it can mean for your life. But also be sensitive to how truly evil it was. So evil that God had to put to death His only Son to deal with it. The most extreme remedy conceivable was required for the most evil thing that could be imagined. And nothing else would have done the job. Not the death of a million angels. Only the death of the only begotten Son. Now, 
We have a few minutes, according to my calculations. I'm not a mathematician, though, so I don't know uh, if my calculations are right. But I did want to raise a few points about how you know that you are in a state of mortification. First thing is that when you are a Christian and you are mortifying sin, the Holy Spirit clearly and fully convinces the heart of the evil and guilt and danger of corruption. And so you are totally aware of this. So when you hear about the evil of sin, the guilt of sin, the danger of sin, your heart instinctively says amen to that. It doesn't say, well, I don't know if I... You know, we, we must sometimes question what we hear from the pulpit. No, not on those things. You can question a lot of the stuff, but not on those things. That's non-negotiable. That's where you lay down your life and you say, sorry, you know, there are things where I am totally right because I'm actually just saying what God's Word says. Then there's a lot of areas where I go, hang on, Mark. <laughs> you know, I don't know about that superlapsarian order of the decrees. But the guilt and danger and evil of sin, if you're sensitive to that, that is a state that the Spirit is working in your life. But also, you may know it by this characteristic. And Christopher Love, a great uh, Puritan who went to uh, the stake for his beliefs, he said that if you are now more fearful of running into occasions and opportunities of sin than you have been in times past, this is an argument that you are a mortified Christian. That you are fearful of running into those occasions that you once weren't fearful of that you know that this is not a good idea and that you have learned by painful experience not to return to your vomit as the dog does. And you know to stay away. The person, maybe some young men can't go to a beach. Is there anything wrong with a beach? No. Not in and of itself. But there may be someone who says, you know, whenever I go to the beach, I end up sinning. And they keep themselves from that area of sin because they know what it does to them. Maybe they know they can't be on their phone or computer late at night because their uh, sensitivity to these things when they're tired doesn't work the same way. Maybe you can't go to certain stores or go online to certain things and, because you're going to just overspend money you don't have. The mortified Christian is one who has become aware of the danger and they stay away from it. They cut off, they pluck out, and they know to stay away. And that may differ from person to person. And that's a personal decision based upon wisdom and prudence that you have to make. Someone may be able to go to a beach or a mall and not sin at all. And there may be others, because of the constitution of where they're at in their Christian life, have to avoid it like the plague. And then thirdly, when an occasion of sinning or committing a sin is openly offered to a person along with the concurring circumstances that might provoke you to sin, not only do you restrain from that, but you actually will find the opposite to do. So there is not just, I don't want to commit sin, but the sign of a mortified Christian is actually finding the opposite to do. Instead of wanting to be angry at people all the time, you find that you can be patient or loving or caring towards people. 
In other words, the Christian life is not simply to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It is also to then say, I will live to God and I will love God and my neighbor. You will do the opposite of what the sinful temptation may be in your heart desiring. And that is the sign of a mortified Christian is somebody who actually practices the opposite of the sin that may be tempting. And then finally, there is a deep humility about what you were and what you still are and a thankfulness of what you will one day be. So you walk around. I was saying to a brother in church tonight about uh, my suit Uh, I have opened my suit up to some of you today and I have Mark Jones there and I'm quite proud of getting into this suit because I got it in Hong Kong many years ago when I uh, was playing soccer and in good shape and today I thought, you know what Mark, let's put that suit on today and see what happens. And I won't go into too much detail, but as I put my pants on, I thought, okay, the button is not going to go flying off. Uh, This is good, but then you know, sometimes you get the suit and If you're a Chris Farley fan, you might know uh, the joke about fat man in a little coat. Well, uh, I could not sort of raise my hands and arms freely. I was kind of stuck in that position. So I'm not a Baptist preacher today waving his arms around because my suit is keeping me uh, quite restrained. And I was thinking about how humility is like that. It keeps you restrained in the sense of your pride and who you are. It kind of keeps you from that flowering of the ego where you are restrained because you remember what you were before God's grace came into your life, but also who you still are and what is in you. And so the sign of a mortified Christian is also a deep humility about even your current state, not just your former state, but then a thankfulness for what God is going to do with you one day. How do you know the Spirit is at work in your life? You have a humility that even your best graces are very imperfect and that there is much left in you that needs to be dealt with, but you are totally thankful that God has promised that He will deal with that. And the Puritan finishes off saying, take this for your comfort, and I'll close with this. In the mortification of every sin, you have Christ's strength to help you And He rewards us as if we had done it ourselves. And yet, it was Christ in us, the hope of glory. His Spirit working in us to accomplish His purposes for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that there is promises to guide us in our Christian living. We do not shirk the responsibility that we must put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, but we also remember that to do that, we need Your Spirit. And we need Your Spirit to keep us focused upon Christ. And we need Christ to be remaining in His focus as He has promised upon us and our ultimate salvation. And so we pray to that end that we will be those who delight in the flowering of graces in our life and the defeat of sin in its death by the Spirit. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.